Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey there, Alt in Our Stars podcast. That is the name of the show. The name of me is Chris Payne. I cover rock and alternative music here at Billboard.com. Probably my favorite thing to do, you know, I like pretty much everything I do at Billboard, but my favorite thing to do is this podcast that you're listening to. And I was fortunate to have a really excellent guest on my podcast this week. His name is Butch Vig, and... If you like any kind of rock music from the past 30 years, then you're a fan of Butch Vig. He produced Nirvana's Nevermind. He produced Smashing Pumpkin's Siamese Dream. He's produced Against Me. He's in the band Garbage, who we we talk about the new music they have coming up. We talk about Foo Fighters' Sonic Highways. That's the Foo Fighters album recorded in eight different cities in America with... Uh, HBO documentary capturing all of it. So we talked about whether or not that will come back for round two. It seems like the answer is yes. Nothing official has been announced yet, but he, he dropped some hints about what to uh, what to expect from Foo Fighters coming up. I think there's going to be a second installment of Sonic Highways coming pretty soon. Talked about new garbage music. I think you'll probably hear that sometime eh, midway next year, maybe before that. So Interesting things happening in the life right now of Butch Vig, and I'm really, really happy that he came by Billboard to chat. So here it is, Alton Our Stars podcast with Butch Vig. Enjoy. Here with Butch Vig talking. I was going to say, talk. It was there's two 20th anniversaries going on right now that you are involved in in some way. The garbage anniversary... And just the Foo Fighters of existing 20th anniversary. Kind of crazy and and really fun. Um, I think also, you're right, I think the Foo's debut album came out the same year our debut album came out. I remember we played a bunch of festivals with the Foo Fighters back in 95 and 96, all kind of in the same circuit, you know, radio mm-hmm. festivals over here in the U.S. and then playing the big festivals over in, uh, in Europe. But, yeah, the... the the tour has been great. We're, um, we, I guess we've done about 10 shows or so. And we're playing the, all the tracks from the first album, as well as all the B-sides mm-hmm. that we recorded in 95 and 96. And some of those B-sides we never played before. So it was a bit of a uh, train wreck in rehearsals trying to figure out how to play all the songs. So far, knock on wood, 
it's um i think we've got them all figured out the shows have been really good how do you think the audience reaction has been to the b-sides do they how familiar do they seem it seems to me about maybe a third of the fans there are super hardcore and they know all the words to the b-sides in fact you can see them singing them gleefully i think they're totally thrilled that we're playing Mm -hmm. these obscure tracks that we never attempted to play before um and it, they just fly over the head of uh, a lot of the audience because they've never heard some of the B-sides. But I think it's cool. I mean, we don't, we decide to only do about 30 shows. We're not going to turn this into a big a year-long tour. It's about six or seven weeks. And uh, so I think each show is kind of special. And so I think the fans who are there are, are pretty hardcore fans. Yeah, and I feel like if you're one of those people who know – one of the few who knows all the words to the B-sides – you want to show off. You want to be like the one in the crowd who's like, yeah, I know the words to this. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. When we do the B-sides, they're singing them more hardcore than the, than the rest of the songs. Yeah. And, and that's totally cool, man. It's, it's fun for us to see that kind of reaction. Yeah. And I guess from where you're perched, it might be easier or more hard to see from, like, from the drum kit how the crowd is. Sometimes I can't see anything, depending on the lights. If the lights are washing us from the front, all I can see is like the back of Shirley and I see my mm. drum kit. And, and other times when it's lit from the back, then I can see everybody. But it just depends on wh- where it is in the song, you know, what song it is. Yeah. And you said you're not making it a full-blown tour, but does Garbage have any plans for like recording a, a next album coming up? We are 90% finished with a new album which we're going to finish some bits and bobs uh, recording in December, and then we're going to mix it in January. And fingers crossed it'll come out around May 1st, something okay. like that. December sounds like a good time to just like be in the studio. Yeah, I mean, I, I live in Los Angeles now, but it's just a, it's kind of things sort of start winding down at the end of the year. A lot of people start going on holidays or schools start shutting down or whatever, and we're going to probably work up until – you know, maybe a few days before uh, the Christmas holidays, and hopefully we'll get all the recording done. Yeah. Cool. And, like, how much like how much have you shared so far? How much do you think the fans know about what to expect? Um, I don't think we've really posted any song snippets. We probably won't until we get closer to, you know, once the songs are mixed, we might put little sound bites out there. Um. I have started saying, someone asked us the other day and at one of the meet and greets before a show what their record sounded like. Mm. I said, Fans doing some homework. Stoner goth rock. <laughs> There's a, about six songs are very much like sort of classic garbage and about six or seven are kind of left field, more U-turns for mm-hmm. us. Uh, but a, there's a couple of these long, like six and a half, seven minute stoner goth rock jams. They're kind of heavy and dark and... Uh, and uh, one's almost sort of dubby. It almost sounds like it could be a track from the Clash of Sandinista if you took okay. too many quaaludes or something. It's <laughs> that's kind of the feel on it. But it's been fun recording. We're we're uh, we're psyched to get another album out. Mm, sounds like this this fan was doing some reporting on the scene at the meet and greet. Broke some news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. But you'll be hearing some snippets um, mm-hmm. probably in the spring when we, when we actually get some of the songs finished. Cool. I'm I'm thinking like, what is it like for you now, rolling out albums and like, t- like teasing things on the internet? Thinking back to like when you started music, I guess like the early '80s when, I guess the rollout for the album was, the record label or whoever sends out physical press releases and like that's it. 
Like it's changed a lot. It's a completely different landscape out there. You know, when I first started making albums, you almost sort of had to figure out how to do that in a void. You know, I didn't even know what a recording studio was when I first started, you know, getting into bands. Mm-hmm. And and then I wanted to become an engineer and a producer, and I never went to any uh, formal recording school or anything. So I sort of had to figure it out on my own. I would go to the library and l- literally get these books on engineering and page through them and see if I could find something out. I would devour interviews by engineers and producers in magazines like Mix or whatever, trying to see if I could figure out, you know, what does a producer do? Mm-hmm. And um, these days, um, with the digital revolution, every young artist or older artist, anyone out there who wants to, has all these tools at their fingertips. You know, you can record a song in your basement on your laptop, and if it's good, you can post it, and it could go viral, and you could have a million people listening to it within 24 hours. That did not happen 20 years ago. And just the way bands can market themselves now, they can sort of take control of their, you know, of their own career. It's really hard to sell CDs these days or, you know, MP3s or whatever because uh, music has, uh, there's been a fundamental shift and and a whole generation of consumers have put music sort of at the bottom of the list. They still consume music Mm. all the time. Music is a bigger part of the fabric of the world we live in than it ever has been, but nobody wants to pay for it and that's just sort of a given. So uh, that's, I guess, one of the things that's empowering about the internet too. It's given, it's sort of leveled the playing field. It's taken the power away from the big major labels, but it's made it difficult for everyone, even young artists. I mean, it's hard to make a living touring. You know, for when the, the argument, well, you can just play live gigs and and you'll do fine. It's hard. It's uh, it's physically taxing and and it's expensive to go out and do it, but it's still out there. So if you really want to do it, you can. You know, those tools are out there to. Uh, to get a record out and market yourself and do it yourself. Yeah. Getting an HBO show is a good way of marketing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the best way. If you can get your own HBO show, I highly recommend mm, it. Don't turn that one down. Yeah. You know, that's was um, working on Sonic Highways was uh, an incredible experience for me, unlike any other album I've ever worked on. It's probably the most ambitious album that was recorded last year, if you think about it, because Dave Grohl and the Foos are one of the few bands that could actually pull off something like that, and it was really Dave's vision. You know, when he came in and told the management, told all of us, yeah, I want to write and record these songs in different cities, and we're going to make a documentary, and everybody was like, no, you're crazy. It's way too hard to do. It's just going to, it's just, it's insane. And Dave's love for music and his sheer enthusiasm is mm. really what made it all happen. We all just were, were <laughs> like, okay, the, all the crew and management, everybody involved was like, okay, you're 100% into this. We're going to get 100% into it too, and um, and we did. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, having so many collaborators, having so many other people to work with, if it made it in some ways easier or just definitely harder, but it seems like it made things definitely harder. Well, it was really unique in the sense that normally when you make an album, you settle into a place and you get used to your environment and then you just you sort of focus on the songs. But this, there were a lot of um, X-factor variables, especially for Dave Grohl, who had the vision to go into each city and really uh, 
dig deep into the musical history from his point of view, plus also from a viewer's point of view. Like there were things I found out in all the shows that I had no idea. You know, I didn't know anything about. And 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 um, Dave really had a true passion for it. But did his research. I think he did well over a hundred interviews for the series. Like every city, there were probably fifteen or twenty interviews. Um, just to really get into the nuts and bolts of uh, the different artists that lived there or that were from there, that were from each city. And so there's there's that whole aspect of it. Like we're we're making a documentary, we're making a, a, a series, you know, a series of films about these cities. Um, it's not just about the music. Um, from my point of view, I needed to try and stay very focused about the music because sometimes there can be a lot of distractions. Some of the cities we went to, uh, like Chicago, the first city where we recorded something for nothing, Steve Albini has a kick-ass, amazing studio. So in some ways, that was kind of easy to roll in there and set up and record. But some of the places, like um, in uh, New Orleans, which is uh, Preservation Jazz Hall, there's no studio there. It was just this funky room that's been there for Mm -hmm. 100 years. And then we set up a makeshift control room down the hallway and you could just see people walking down bourbon street they'd stick their heads in and go hey what y'all doing in that room in there and, i know what bourbon street is like yeah it was crazy in 24 <laughs> hours a day too um but that was part of the experience it was just mm-hmm. part of it kind of by the seat of our pants and another x factor was that dave really didn't finish any of the lyrics until the last day of each city we were in he had an idea what he was going to do melodically, and I'm sure he had some bits and pieces of the lyrics. But the band and myself just worked on the songs together without any any final vocals. Really, in some cases, in pre-production with no vocals. And sometimes I would have to ask the band, um, like I'd ask Pat Smear or Chris Shiflet, uh, they'd come up with these guitar parts, and Dave wasn't singing, and I'd say is this guitar part going to work in this verse? And Dave would think, I could see him thinking and go, no, it's not going to work. It's going to conflict with the vocal. But he never sang me the vocal. And that was the first time I've ever made a record without sort of knowing what the song is going to sound like. You know, And so much of what a, a musical performance is, at least in rock and roll, centers around a vocal performance. And when you don't have that, you start making up in your head what you think it could be or it might be or what the vibe is going to be. And we were all sort of on this journey uh, in each city we went to to see how the song was going to turn out each week because Dave would, at the end of each week, the last day would come in. The night before, he would sit up and drink some wine in his hotel room and write down all the lyrics, mm-hmm. and he borrowed and, and used references and little bits and pieces from all the interviews and the inspiration he had got from each city. And I don't really know any record that's been made that way ever. It's kind of crazy, but I think it kept all the songs... Uh, exciting for all of us through the process and it gave each song a, a, a bit of a vibe for each city it really did like Dave really kind of immersed himself in, in what he was doing both with the band and also with the interviews and just being in that city mm-hmm. and I can hear some of that influence on the tracks and I think that's one of the things that, that makes the album so special
working with so many like really famous seasoned like legit musicians it makes me think like when you're an editor when you're working with like writers who you kind of look up to and it's like oh shit i have to edit this person and like tell them this looks better here were there any musicians who you collaborated with who was like huh i'm gonna tell you to change this well every every band is different and every song is different too you, you never really know i never really know um what to expect i mean I've worked with artists who are very focused and, and they play me a song and it's pretty much done. And sometimes there's very little to do. Mm-hmm. And other times um, there's an idea of a song, but it's in a sort of a state of chaos and you have to work with them and work a lot on it to kind of pull out the best bits and get them to rewrite bits. And, and that's tricky because uh, a lot of artists are very sensitive about what they're writing. In some cases, they don't really like to be told that it, the song needs some work. Mm-hmm. You know, I much prefer to work with bands that have a strong vision and they know kind of clearly what they want to do. You know, and it's then it's my job to help them reach that vision. It's it's tougher, I think, for me and for everyone involved. When, uh, like I said, it, it's the uh, you, you start a record and it's in a bit of a a mess. You know, that's that's a trickier record sometimes to navigate. Yeah, and, like, the foos are so tight and seasoned with that now. And probably on top of that, from working with them with that and with Wasting Light, you probably just have – your guys are like this. I'm entangling my fingers, like, too, for those listening. You guys are like – you know where you're going to – what you two are going to do when you're in the studio probably. Well, I mean, I'm lucky that I've known Dave Grohl for over 20 years. In fact, just a few years ago, we also celebrated the 20th anniversary of Nevermind, and that was a real kick for Dave and Chris and me to get together and talk about the making of the record and how it changed our lives quite profoundly. Um, when we went in to do Wasting Light, uh, Dave, I went out to his house and, and Sino and sat down, and he just started throwing me curveballs. I want to do the whole record on tape, and I want to do it all in my garage. And I'm like, okay tape yeah I, I used to know how to make records on tape and <laughs> and then when he said his garage I was, I was like okay well let's go look at your garage and we went down in his house and went down opened the garage he slid the door up it's just a rectangular garage not much bigger than the room that we're sitting in right now and it sounded like a garage just four perpendicular walls it rang had a certain ringy frequency to it and then he set up a drum kit and he started playing and I was like damn it sounds good in here okay so it's like okay we'll just we figured out we'll run cables out the window up the side of the uh the house and run them through the top and up and there's a little room over the garage that, that was his like a study and that's where we set up a makeshift control room and it was cool i mean uh i you know after working with dave on wasting light then i did sound city and that was a truly unique experience um i mean that that was kind of crazy again because i had no idea what was going to happen on a day-to-day basis dave had these collaborations with people coming into the studio and he was also interviewing people about sound city so every day was a a unique experience and i had no idea what was going to happen we walked in the studio and that is really effing fun yeah because you don't know and that's that that process makes it really exciting to to walk into studio every single day yeah what's i'm interested how has Dave in the studio how has he changed and grown since like working on Nevermind because it's probably a hell of a lot well yeah he's changed uh, an immense amount in some ways 
and he's also exactly the same in some ways. When I first met him with Nevermind, he brought this great energy and levity because he's so funny and, and just got a, a crazy sense of humor and charm. Um, and the band needed that in some instances, uh, especially as they as the record really took off, uh, you know, just to try and keep them a bit grounded. Mm. Um, he's an incredible drummer, but it turns out he's also an incredible guitarist. Oh, and really? An incredible <laughs> singer and <laughs> and a great songwriter, a great, great songwriter. Mm. And these things I didn't know. I, I got an inkling of, you know, when we did Nevermind. There was a, he, did, he wrote some B-sides, you know, when the first record came out. And sometimes he'd be sitting in the corner of the studio playing a guitar, but I had no idea that he, he had killer, he's got killer chops on guitar, too. Mm. Killer. Yeah, because I'm thinking of all these qualities that he has now to, to coordinate and commission Sonic Highways, because so much of it is, so it's like, it goes beyond being a front man, a band leader. It's almost like being a journalist, kind of, with the interviews and putting this together. So I guess there were small little inklings of though that like leadership that you saw in him. Yeah, it was his idea totally to, to shoot for the moon with mm-hmm. Sonic Highways and go to all these different cities and, and really capture the essence of what the musical scene is like. Um, he did it all, man. Every every day, like we'd roll in the studio around 11 in the morning or noon. Mm-hmm. He'd already been up at like 8 o'clock doing like three or four hours of interviews. And sometimes in the middle of the afternoon, we'd be getting ready to track something. He goes, I got to leave at 3. I got to go interview Tony Joe White or whoever. And, and I'd look at his schedule every day and I don't know how he's how he can do it. Sometimes he's like the uh, energizer buzz. You know, the, he's like the energizer bunny. He gets up really early and he just burns hard all day. Plus, at night he likes to hang out and have fun. I mean, he's he's a very gregarious personality. We'll be walking down the street after leaving the studio around midnight, and people just walk by and go, "Hey, Dave, what's going on, man?" He goes, "Hey, man, you want to go have a shot of Jägermeister?" And pretty soon we just wander into a local bar. And pretty soon there's 10, 20, 50, 100 people, and then Dave's just, you know, out cruising around. We're all cruising around just having some fun. And we pretty much did that every night. But Bourbon Street, <laughs> tell me about you guys on Bourbon Street. Dave cruising. Oh, there were some amazing moments there. Uh I think the the funnest part was uh, I th- one of the last days we were there, so many people had started to spread the word. The Foo Fighters are at Preservation Jazz Hall. So people were just hanging out on the street and walking by. And I think it was that Saturday night we were there. Uh, Sunday was the last day we were there. And the band decided to play in Preservation Jazz Hall. And it's a, not that big of a room. And they just threw open the windows and started playing, and within about five minutes, they, the police had to shut down that the one block off Bourbon Street because there were probably 2,000 people trying to listen to the Foo Fighters. And they just set up a couple, couple speakers outside, and they played, you know, an hour and a half show. And uh, and then Dave got in this... Uh, uh, he, he played with the Preservation Jazz Hall Band, and they um, the whole band sort of got into a... Uh, the New Orleans street dance and they started doing mm-hmm. the, the two-step going down the street with the horn swinging and, and the uh, whole crew of people just followed him and we wandered about four or five blocks and uh, Ben the guy from Preservation Jazz Hall had set up a um, a shrimp boil and uh, you know all this Cajun food it was so great and we just wandered down had some beers and they threw up on this giant table about 
20,000 shrimp that we, all, all these people went down. We had a crazy party, crazy street party. And mm. So fun. That doesn't happen every day in a recording studio. <laughs> no, in no fact, people... that's the first time that ever happened to me. <laughs> so that song, was that number one, if you could rank out of the eight cities in terms of partying, good times? Was I feel like New York maybe... Yeah. Oh, I don't even. I, I, I hadn't even ranked them in terms of partying. <laughs> it's fun to you rank know. I'll parties. tell you where we. I think we actually partied the hard. Partied the hardest was um, Chicago, because about three blocks from Albini Studio, there was this place called. Uh, I think it was Kuma's or Kuba's. Oh, the metal theme burger place. Death, Death I Metal love Burger that Bar. Place. Death Metal Burger mm-hmm. Bar. And so we would, you know, work until 11 o'clock at night or 12 o'clock or something like that. And, and then David would go, let's go over and get a burger and a beer. And so we would all put our coats on. It was about 20 below the week we were there. It was freezing effing cold. And we just pull our hats and stuff on. And then we'd walk in. By the time by the time I would get there, my glasses would have frosted over and my mustache had frozen solid. <laughs> But then we get there, and they're like, hey, man, you guys want some shots of Jägermeister? And they would just make all these burgers and sort of put them out family style, and we'd hang out there for an hour or two. And it's really fun. We pretty much went there every night after after recording. It was a gas. Do you remember what burgers you had? Because they're all named after metal bands. The one that kind of freaked everybody out a little bit was the uh, – I can't remember who it was named after. It was like a bacon burger, and I think there was a pound of bacon on the burger. So this giant burger – and you'd, on the bun, they'd put like 16 strips of bacon. And so it was a little insane. So that way we, we would usually cut up into like eighths and then everybody just have a tiny little bite because mm. otherwise you'd go, oh, my God, I'll probably die if I even attempt to eat half of this. Huh. Pig Destroyer. Maybe it was called Pig Destroyer. Could have been. Yeah, you've uh, been there, right? Yeah, I've been there. I don't. I had the Mastodon burger both times. I was boring. I had the same thing twice. Yeah, but it's. It's darn tasty, right? Yeah, yeah it's really... and it's a cool, it's a cool hang there because they play death metal. Yeah, really loud. Yeah, it's a very, very sensory experience. It's overwhelming, but good. I will say this: every city had pretty much a completely different, unique vibe to it, and as it should be, right? Not so much from. Um, the studio setting but more from just the personalities of the people who we met there that uh, taking in the city going out every night even get in the morning trying to find coffee and, and coming into the studio um and then seeing all the different people come through the studio the different artists that Dave interviewed and ta- meeting a lot of them and talking to a lot of them mm-hmm. and each song on Sonic Highways I think is also uh completely unique sounding you know the the it's sort of is its own beast in a way um i think that's what makes the album kind of really unique in a way it's it's thematically linked together by going to the the experience of each city having its own sort of vibe and sound that influenced the each song Mm -hmm. in, in a certain way and um again i don't really know anybody who's done an album like that but um I, I, as I said earlier, I can hear the, uh, and uh, maybe I'm obviously prejudiced because I went through that process, but I can sort of hear how each city sank its tentacles into mm. each song, you know, and not just for me and for Dave, but for everybody in the Foos and everybody in the crew, James Brown, the engineer, and all the people, the film crew and sound crew and stuff that were there. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. What was it like for you doing a lot of stuff on camera, being filmed a lot? Was that different? I don't particularly like having cameras in my face all the time. You do kind of get used to it. Mm Mm-hmm. I got used to it a little bit when we did Wasting Light. Um, every day you'd come in and they'd, I'd be talking to Dave, and and right away they'd go, well, we got to get you wired up, and they put a little pack and a little mic on you. And then you just see cameras everywhere. The thing that freaked me out when we did Wasting Light was we had set up a, a little control room, and we had a little API board set up um, in the lounge above the studio. Oh, excuse me, in the lounge above the garage, Dave's garage. And... There were a couple speakers, and the, and the board was there, and they had set this camera, a remote camera up, and it was about right here. So I'd be sitting at the API doing something like this, and we work on something. Dave would maybe have just done a couple of vocal takes, and I was trying to listen to them, and everybody would leave the room. And I'd be sitting there, and then the camera would go, Bzzz. and I, it would freak me out because you would just forget. It would go into this moment. I'm just concentrating 100% on the music. Mm. And then the camera would go, and I would jump. It would startle me, even though, damn, I know that camera's there. And you forget, it's recording everything, whether I'm picking my nose, you know, uh, staring off into space blankly, or, you know, trying to think or focus. Um, But you do start to get used to it. Yeah. And then we did uh, Sound City, and there were cameras there for that. And and then, of course, there were cameras in every city we went to for Sonic Highways. Mm. What about pre-working on Sonic Highway? Was there ever an album where there was like a similar amount of like attention, you know, recording in the studio, other outsiders there when you were working? Well, when we did the pre-production, we did that all at 606 at their studio out in uh, Northridge in, in the Valley in Los Angeles. And that was pretty much just the band and me and, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of the of Lou, some, their local, the engineer who works there at the studio with them and and uh but it's it's different when you go into a into a studio and there's a full camera crew and plus Dave likes to invite his friends so a lot of the people who he was interviewing just came and hung out at the studio so it was there was a bit of a posse there yeah. and it takes a bit of getting used to that i'm totally okay with that if the band is okay with it you know and i think the band finally after doing wasting light and also just you know they're they're used to playing in front of big crowds obviously and they're they're used to having cameras around it i think they're all pretty comfortable with it the only one in the band who really doesn't like it is taylor he's he just doesn't like he's not very fond of having a camera in his face and doing interviews although he's 
I, I find him to be uh, very. He, he, I think he's very funny when he is interviewed, but he just doesn't like it very much. Mm-hmm. I think he's uncomfortable with it. But everybody kind of got used to it. But it's again, it's something I'm not used to. It's funny. Uh, back in the day, I never liked cameras in the studio. Like when I worked with, uh, you know, when I worked on Nevermind, I think there's maybe two or three photos from the session that someone had a camera and happened to click a photo. Or when I worked on Siamese Dream with the pumpkins, there were no cameras in the studio. I always kind of felt like there's a um, doctor-patient confidentiality in what you do in the studio. No one needs to know about it except for you and the hmm. band. Now, of course, in this world we live in, it's about tweet everything. Everybody wants content for their website. Uh, it's just a world that's driven by everyone has access to everything. So it's completely different in yeah, I'm I'm cool with that. You just mm. gotta gotta get used to it. Man, if it's I'm thinking of like of what the pumpkins must have been like in like nineteen ninety three. If there was someone there recording all that and documenting that, that would have been pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean I in some ways I wish I would have uh, at least taken a few more photos or you know, had some shots of a band tracking in it or some some film clips, but you know, whatever. I I didn't. I just I didn't like cameras yeah. around. Oh well, searching. For it's all. Gen- it's all up here in my head, Chris. Yeah, yeah. Like s- footage of them searching for Jimmy, trying to find where yeah, he is. Yeah, well, that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I try to just stay focused on, on making music. Mm. You know, not not the not the melodrama. I know Dave did an interview with I think NME where he kind of hinted that there's going to be a second Sonic Highways. Do you know anything about what direction it might take going forward? I think there is going to be a Sonic Highways too, but it's still in discussions right now. I know Dave and HBO are both really want to do them, but it's going to be different. It won't be the same exact format as the as the last album. So. Um, can't really talk about it because mm. honestly I don't know a whole lot of the details yet either I'm, I'm sure it'll, if it happens it'll probably happen next summer you know they finished they've been on tour all year and uh, I think they finish up at the end of November so they'll, they'll probably take a little bit of a break but Dave doesn't really like taking breaks much I know they're he, he gets impatient he's going to want to get into uh, recording so it wouldn't surprise me if uh, if it gets rolling sometime in the spring or as I said early summer mm. How about this? Where would you, assuming you were producing it, where would you want to go in the world? Oh man, there's so many uh, interesting approaches. Uh, you could sort of follow. You could look at some classic albums or albums that we that I grew up listening to, or anyone, Dave or anybody mm-hmm. grew up listening to. Um, you know, where did Led Zeppelin record? Where did the Beatles record? Abbey Road a lot. Um, when Paul McCartney came in to work on Sound City, we, we talked to him for a couple hours before we recorded. Just he was 
telling stories, so we just kept grilling him with questions and talked a lot about Band on the Run, where he went to Africa to record, and that was just a crazy experience for him. Kind of hard to believe he even did it back then. Mm. It wasn't necessarily uh, the safest environment. You know, there, there was political turmoil there, and they, they just went, hey, let's go record a record, you know, and, and they did. <laughs> it's a great record. Um, but uh, there's so many different interesting approaches you could take um, for a recording you know, if you're, if you're going to travel around and do another Sonic Highways like that. But we'll, we'll wait and see. I'm sure Dave's, uh, I'm sure he's going to get it figured out. From what you've been telling me, I feel like when he first brings up ideas, he likes to shock you guys. You know, I think I talked to Dave a lot when we started Wasting Light, and he kept saying, what am I going to do, just go into our Studio 606 and make another album and put an album out? Mm. He goes, we put out how many albums at that mm. point, eight or seven or eight or nine albums. I don't know what they had done at the time. And I think for him and for the band, he just wants to have a different experience. And, and he really wanted to have that with Wasting Light. And, and making Wasting Light was a gas. And then when he did Sound City, that became a, a, a love letter to that studio. And, and, and I don't think he knew exactly how big it was going to grow when he came up with the idea to do that and then it just took off and became this uh, amazing film and documentary and that I think is what gave him the idea to do Sonic Highways you know mm -hmm. he's just really I think he's just wants to have a truly unique experience when he when he makes a new album and, and how he can experience that for himself and for the band but also then how will that affect you know what listeners hear when they hear a, a Foo Fighters album mm. And they've done so much already. There must be some element of like, what can we do next? Like they've, they're the Foo Fighters. Like they've done so much. It's like you want to keep pushing things forward. Yeah, I mean, most artists that I know are always trying to sort of push forward, push themselves in some ways. Mm, yeah, you know, cool. and and uh, I think that's one of the the things that makes a a, a great artist really unique is that they are going to take some risks and chances. And sometimes, mm. you know, you 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 take some chances and you might stumble a little bit, but I think you can learn from those experiences and uh, and to put obstacles in your way. Like some of the the, the sessions that we did on, on, on Sonic Highways were hard, you know, and um, part of it because it, we, we weren't in necessarily always in a cushy recording studio. And because the schedule got really crazy and because we weren't sure exactly how the song was going to sound in its finished form. But I personally like those obstacles. And I know Dave and the band do too because it keeps you on your toes, you know. Keeps it mm. keeps uh, keeps life interesting. Yeah. When you were saying about like every band wanting to push forward, I kept thinking of when Metallica played Antarctica and became the first <laughs> rock band to play Antarctica. Yeah. It was pretty badass, you got to admit. I mean... No one's played Antarctica, at least as far as I know. They're the only rock band I know that's played there, right? Yeah, no one before. Fall Out Boy tried to, and it didn't work out. And I think that there was a performance of, like, scientists who were stationed there at the base doing research. So the caveat was, like, the first popular artist or first rock band. But, yeah, just them before and since, just Metallica. Yeah, who's going to be the first band to perform from outer space? Hmm... 
do you think Dave is working? <laughs> I feel like Dave has probably yeah. already thought about that. Sonic Highways is out of this world. <laughs> there's the t- I mean, yeah, there's the tagline. You know, if it was possible, it wouldn't surprise me that that, uh, that Dave would want to try and do something like that. I mean, Dave, Dave's got some <laughs> life left. NASA has advanced well over the years. It could happen. You never know, right? Mm. I mean, I, I, this tour the Foos have been on, they're playing incredible right now. They're, um, yeah, obviously you probably saw he broke his leg, yeah. severely broke his leg. In fact, the cast just came off a few weeks ago, and he's still rehabbing it. Um, God, it was it was a really scary, dangerous fall he took, but mm-hmm. he rose the occasion. I don't know if you got a chance to see him in his. Uh, his throne, the Foo oh, Fighters I have, I've throne. Seen, I've seen yeah, the throne. it's pretty, pretty yeah. bad, pretty badass. Mm-hmm. And he des- he designed it too, right? Yeah, I, I, he told me it was under uh, medication, a lot of medication huh. for his leg. He just sort of drew all these sketches out, and there it is. Mm. But I mean, a lot of bands wouldn't do that. They would, they put the tour on hold and wait till they were 100 percent healthy and and go back and then you know either not play the shows or reschedule what they could, but. I don't think he wanted to. He, he I, the band also did not want to get deterred from that. I think they really wanted to go and play the shows for the tour for Sonic Highways. Have you ever tried? Like, have you ever had to play through an injury or had to like rehab or anything serious that you had to like work through with drumming? I've never had anything that serious as a broken leg, yeah. but yeah, over the course of God, we've played over a thousand shows in garbage, and I've gone on stage with a hundred and four fever and. Um, you know all sorts of weird illnesses. I uh, years ago, uh, we garbage is opening for you too, and I didn't even know this. I got hepatitis A, and I thought it was the flu. I think I got it from eating oysters or some some funky food somewhere. Um, I thought I had the flu, and I kept playing shows, thinking I'll feel better, I'll feel mm-hmm. better. And then I almost passed out at a show. We played at, like the stadium or whatever, the arena in Chicago. Um, and we flew on a plane the next day to Baltimore, and I I passed out on the plane, and I woke up in a hospital in Baltimore, and they said you've got hepatitis A, and we're putting you on IVs, and you're not going to be playing any shows for about six weeks. And uh, I was bound and determined to not miss Madison Square Garden because we I'd never played there before. Mm-hmm. The, the couple years earlier, Garbage is supposed to play with the Pumpkins, and that's when. Um, Sadly, Jonathan Melvoin, the keyboard player, OD'd on heroin, and they canceled that that tour. They canceled part of the, the part of the shows on that tour, and I was just bummed. I was like, I didn't want to miss that. So uh, I played that show. I was I had lost about almost twenty pounds, and uh, I could barely. I really had no strength at all. Plus, I was getting these unbelievable migraines because of my body detoxing. Not to digress too much on this, but. I played the show. I said we got to play a really mellow set, and so I did. We did open for U2 at uh, Madison Square Garden. Larry Mullen Jr., U2 drummer, came to me before and said, "I'm going to stand behind you, sit behind you the whole show. If you fall, you can't make it or fall off or whatever. I'll just take over mm-hmm. for you." And God bless him, he did. He he stood there for 40 minutes behind me, and he had my back, wow. man. So that was pretty cool. But after that, I went home for six weeks and. Uh, and recuperate him. Mm, he was like your spotter. It's like if you're benching in the gym, and someone. But he did it for 40 minutes. Yeah, man. Ready to catch you. I think a lot of bands, you know, if you can, there's sort of a that show business thing. You know, if you can walk, you can play. Mm-hmm. You know, you, no matter how effed up you are, you know, if you just if you can make it through the show, you got it. Show business, you got to try and make it through the show. 
Yeah, Bono just went through something like that after that cycling accident. He probably had to rehab so much. Yeah, I mean, I I know so many musicians who have walked on stage and, and had to do a two-hour show. Dave was telling me, actually, they played some shows in Mexico, the football stadium, before we um, recorded uh, Sonic Highways. And he got some nasty virus thing, like both ends burning, 103-degree fever, right, like hours before he went on stage. Mm-hmm. And it was a football stadium in front of 80,000 people. You can't go, mm, I don't feel good. I don't think I'm going to play. So... Uh, he went out and played. He said he thought he was going to die, but he played a two, you know, over a two-hour show in front of eighty thousand people. With just he, he was basically uh, out of his mind with a fever and and had been sick, and he still did it. You know, mm-hmm. oh, that's rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So mostly, like, is is there anything else you wanted to touch on with with Sonic Highways or anything else? Uh, man, I just, I can't reiterate how truly unique the experience was. I just don't know any band that would even want to try and attempt to make a record like that. It was such a great, great experience. I think the album turned out great. I love the songs. I love the the track from Seattle. Um, That was really cool, going to Robert Lang's studio, and I I love going to the city there. I love Mm -hmm. Something for Nothing, the, the first track. I really think that Dave channeled some of the, some of the punk rock feel and some of the um, blues influence from uh, Chicago crept into the track a little bit, and uh, I think that I, I love that song. I think it's just an epic, epic track. The funny thing is, that was in pre-production. Something for nothing was the hardest song to rehearse because it was really long, and there's a lot of different parts to it. It starts out really just Dave and the guitar and then mm-hmm. it just builds and builds and builds and there's these tempo changes and a lot of groove changes and I kept thinking to myself when we went into uh, Electrical Audio Steve Albini's studio that this is going to take a lot of work in the back of my head I thought well we're recording the tape I can always record we can record the front up to when it kicks into sort of the funky section and then I can do a tape edit there and when it goes to the next section I can just do tape edits and I've done tape edits before we did a couple songs. There were some tape edits and a couple songs on uh, Wasting Light. And uh, so I was like, okay, cool. And I know that the the band was, uh, Taylor doesn't like being edited at all on drums. He's like, he just doesn't like it. He wants to just play it. And we got into Chicago the night before, and we set up, and, and the band ran through. We kept working on tones and stuff till around 11 o'clock at night or midnight or something like that. Then mm-hmm. we went to the Death Metal Burger Bar. Mm-hmm and had beers and Jägermeister for a couple hours. So everybody was well, you know, uh, not even rested, but I think it, it sort of took your mind a little bit off um, off recording tomorrow. And we got up the next morning, it was so cold, and, we, and there was, you know, no, couldn't even walk around. And we, so we went right to the studio, and I thought, okay, let's just settle in. This is going to be a long day. And uh, I, maybe around 12.30 or so, we said okay you guys ready tapes rolling mm-hmm. and they started playing the song i was like holy shit this sounds so good and they kept playing it and they played it and played it and played it and when they finished the song i just sort of stopped and went i think you nailed it on the first take that it's a six, i don't know how long the song is six and a half minutes or it's a long it's an epic number mm-hmm. and they friggin nailed it in one take and i was kind of 
blown away by that. It, it's there's also a section in the song when it goes it goes the heavy guitar of and Taylor does it's a really hard part to play on drums, really really difficult, and he friggin nailed it on the and, and he must have laid up all night. I'm gonna I'm not gonna Butch Vig is not gonna edit the tape the takes on this. I'm gonna mm-hmm. nail it. I'm gonna take because he did man. He played an incredible incredible performance. The whole band did, and. Um, we you know we spent a lot of time overdubbing guitars and and uh, and then Dave you know did his vocals at the end of the week but I, I love something from nothing I think that's a it's one of the monster tracks on on Sonic Highways mm. and so these days if someone nails it the first time you won't just make them keep doing takes if someone <laughs> nails it you'll you'll let them get off with one take yeah I mean I usually if if the if it's a great take yeah you go holy shit you got it in one take. Mm. Well done. You know? There's the motivation. Yeah, I mean they're they're such badass players. There there were a couple of takes on uh, wasting light too. I think we got on the first take, but we didn't do a lot of takes. Even on uh, the the track that was probably the most difficult to record was um, uh, the track in Seattle because we set up to track it live and. We spent all day getting sounds, and, and Taylor sat in there, where we worked on the drum sounds, and the band came in, and we started playing. And we actually did a couple takes, and then they came in and listened. And it sounded too much like a band playing in a in a studio, like a live. And we went back, and none of us could quite figure out, and then we listened to the demo we had done of it. And the demo that was the only song on Sonic Highways that was over, everything was overdubbed very distinctly almost 70s style like in a really dead mm. environment so it, it, every every track was isolated and we listened to it and went, well that's how the the demo has a cool sound so we should let's go do that let's approach let's approach the song with that similar attitude and so we took taylor's drums and we put him into a corner of the studio that was completely completely dead and then we deadened him down more with tape and with some towels and things very 70s style and I think Dave had put down an acoustic guitar as a guide as the, as the main lead and then we I, we did something also I've never done before we were having we didn't like the way the cymbals were sounding and we we're like well maybe we could do the Taylor could just do the drums and then go back and overdub the cymbals. You know, people have done that before. Dave Dave said, "Why don't I play the cymbals live in the vocal booth with Taylor while he plays the drums live, and we'll sound like a drummer? The the drums will be isolated." I was thinking, okay. Um, so I while don't really, he sung, he would not while he sang. He you know. this is just as we built the track. Okay. He he Dave just put down an acoustic guitar as the first thing, then we put down the drums mm-hmm. second. So Taylor played drums in the studio with a dead kit, but no cymbals, just playing the kick, snare, and toms. And Dave played the cymbals, and they played like one drummer, and I've never seen anybody do it. They did it in one take. Hmm. So so Dave's going, and Taylor's going, boom, you know, playing the drums. It has a very Fleetwood Mac sort of sound to it, that kind of 70s dead studio sound. But I was kind of blown away i've never seen anybody do that mm. and it sounds amazing 
And just from complete ad-libbing and just like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. I'll go inside the booth. Yeah, it was really, again, I think it was Dave's idea to do it. And we said, hey, you know what, I'll just play the cymbals in here live with Taylor while he does his part. You know, that we didn't overdub him separately. They played him live together. Mm-hmm. And and, um, and it also gives the, the drum sound a kind of a weird, unique sound. You know, if you record something in a room and you put an ambient mic up and there's any sort of live sound to it at all, uh, an ambient mic will capture that. And your brain registers that. And when you record, when you deaden the drums down so you can't, your brain can't really tell what the space is, then you put the cymbals in another room, and the drums start sounding uh, quite unique sounding. They don't sound like you're staying in a room, and that can sort of mess with your psychoacoustic evaluation of where the track is coming from. And then, and then we kept doing things on the track. We're adding a lot of reverb, delay, and other things. And certain things were really dry, and and so your brain gets this. Uh, the production of, of, of gets quite um, interesting sounding. A lot of that, that also then was sort of done in the mix. How you define where the space is that the mm-hmm. song is in. But that was really a, a, a that was also a first time for me. I never, had never done that before. That was cool. Cool. So, also, do you have any other projects coming up? Any other artists you're working with, or is it just like? I'm just in the garbage zone right now. We're trying to get the new record done, mm-hmm. um, and as I said, hopefully in December, get all the recording done and then and, and mix it through uh, January. So, um, so, I don't really have any projects scheduled yet in the spring. Um, keeping some after this tour and getting that done I want to have some time just to to figure out what's coming down the pipeline Mm -hmm. so to speak and we'll probably be doing some garbage shows at some point next year again too don't know when yet but yeah so it seems like your projects are like life projects now very big time consuming (laughs) things as opposed to just like producing against me producing Jimmy World like hopping from album to album like that kind of has gotten that way and even without me really even just happened. realizing it yeah i mean i just uh i you know i i spent a lot of time obviously with garbage and and sometimes those the records can take a while to make and then we'll we'll go out and do some you know some uh, live dates and and then working with the food yeah I've, I've done you know besides wasting light i did sound city and then sonic highways and those were all pretty epic undertakings so hmm. Um, I, every show I get bands that give me music. They, they don't give me CDs anymore. They give me the little, you know, here's a little memory stick, which is cool because mm-hmm. it doesn't take up nice as much cl- space. You have a nice collection of, of, of flash drives now. I have a lot of travel. flash drives, yeah. But it's cool. I mean, I, I hear a lot of really interesting young uh, new artists and, and uh, bands out there, but I, I just haven't really even considered uh, taking on anything new at the moment. Mm. So I'm pretty pretty busy with with the stuff I already have on my plate. Is there just anything new just that you've heard that you really like that maybe someone pass along to you? Um, nothing I can mention here. Hmm. Uh, secret new bands. Secret new bands. No, not really. Um, I'm trying to think, even think what I've just been listening to on my, uh, on my uh, phone or on my laptop. I, I love the new Beach House record. Okay, which the new new one, the the one that came out a month ago or a couple months ago. Okay, because um, they just dropped another one last week. Surprise, kind of. Oh, I have, yeah, the one that came out like two months ago. Yeah, or whatever. yeah Beach House has been dropping a lot lately, so yeah. it's kind of hard to keep up with. Yeah, yeah, I love some of the new Silver Sun pickups tracks. We're we're friends with the 
the band. They, I live in Silver Lake in Los Angeles, and they, the, all the band members kind of live right around that area. They were on um, the podcast a couple months ago. Yeah, I, I, I've always I've loved them. Brian came in and sang on uh, this track we did for Record Store Day, the garbage track called The Chemicals. And it was so fun working with him, man. He's, he's really talented. And I love some of the tracks on their new record. There's mm-hmm. three or four killer songs on there. Cool. So, yeah, if, is, is there anything else? This, this has been cool. A lot of fun. No, I'm just, uh, thanks for having me on here. It is fun. It's fun uh, just chatting about music. I'm only happy when it rains. I'm only happy when it's complicated. And no, I know you can't appreciate it. I'm only happy when it rains. So that concludes another episode of the Altenar Stars. If you have any feedback about the podcast, positive, negative, anything at all, uh, it would be great to hear from you. So chris.pain, that's C-H-R-I-S dot P-A-Y-N-E at billboard.com. Hit me up in email or hit on Twitter. It's at C-Pain on a plane, C-P-A-Y-N-E-O-N-A-P-L-A-N-E. And if you want to give us a star rating on iTunes, that helps a lot. So... All those things, all feedback-related things are super, super appreciated. And if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can click the iTunes link towards the bottom of the story. If you're viewing it on billboard.com, that is. Anywhere else, just go into the podcasts in Apple and iTunes. Search for the Alt and Our Stars. There you can also listen to archived episodes. We've had Bully on the show lately, Beach Slang, Magical Clouds, Albert Hammond Jr., Silver Sun Pickups, lots of fun stuff. So check that out there. A new podcast runs every Friday afternoon, new Alton R Stars, around 12, 1 p.m. on Billboard.com. So until next week, uh, have a good weekend, everybody. Peace out. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.